Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today, I am joined by New York Times bestselling author, Sarah Knight. Sarah's first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck, was an international bestseller and has sold over 3 million copies to date. It taught us the art of mental decluttering. Now, her latest book, Grow the Fuck Up, promises to help us navigate this experience we call adulting. Sarah, welcome to the Power Hour podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh my gosh, we've got so much to talk about today. And I read recently that you have become known as the anti-guru. I absolutely love that as a title. So is this a true and fair description, would you say? I am all about that description. I think it fits me to a T. I believe it was gifted to me by The Observer magazine way back when I published my first book. And I think they were saying it because, you know, of the the cursing and the humor. But I think it suits me in general as someone who is a bit of a nonconformist. Yeah, I think that especially today, I think the modern world, there's so many gurus. And I think everybody probably loves your kind of no bullshit candid approach um i'm sure that kind of cuts through cuts through the noise but we see that it has with the three million copies sold i mean firstly what is that like as an author with your first book to know that your book is being you know it's translated into lots of languages it's around the world and to have sold that many copies it is frankly unbelievable and my career before this was as a book editor so i spent 15 years working in new york city and some of the top publishing houses in the us so i was there for hundreds of other authors whose books were being launched out into the world some of whom enjoyed great and glorious success and some of whom did not sell that very many copies and i just had a a sort of jaded and I thought pragmatic approach to publishing my first book, which was, you know, I sure hope that more than 20 people read it. So this has been a shock to say the least, and I've enjoyed every second of it. Yeah, I bet. And so the new book is what we're going to talk about today. And even the term adulting, I feel like a lot of people now are familiar with this term, this idea that, you know, well, actually being an adult doesn't come with a manual and there's all these different things to navigate and it's really challenging. So I'd love to dive into it. I was really lucky to receive an early PDF copy of the book, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. Thank you. I kind of just want to dive in straight at the top, really. So the first thing that I highlighted was so the, the MO. So you talk about three words. Maturity, responsibility, and accountability. Now, when I read that, I think I'll be honest, at first I wasn't, maybe growing up, I wasn't aware that these things were optional. However, (laughs) when you meet people, when you meet people in the real world, I'm sure we all have met people who, for whatever reason, they seem to think these things are optional and they don't take any responsibility or accountability for their actions, their behavior, their words. It just is bizarre. So I guess, why is it important for us to start there? Why did you start the book? Why is that the MO? Why is it important for us to start with these three words? Well, I like to take the opportunity in all of my books to boil things down to their most essential ingredients because I want to make it 
as easy and pleasant as possible for readers to pick up what I'm putting down. So I actually did an anonymous survey before I started writing the book. I had hundreds of people respond to this Google survey about what adulting means to them and what they think are the most important qualities in an, in an adult. And also, I said, think of somebody in your life who you perceive as a big fucking baby. What is it that makes you think that about them? So I had another list going on the other side of all of the qualities that do not make somebody mature, responsible, and accountable. And I sifted through all of that and, of course, my my life experience up to my 44 years and really tried to boil it down. And I came to these three pillars of adulting. And the other thing that I try to do with all of my books is show people how to develop skills and how to achieve a mindset that will help them do a million different things. So Grow the Fuck Up is not a manual for adulting in the sense that I don't take you through the step-by-step process to do your taxes or the step-by-step process to change a tire. What I do is try to explain to you how being overall more mature, more responsible, and more accountable for your actions makes you the kind of person that understands this is what you need to go out and do and makes you the kind of person who's capable of figuring out how to do it. Yeah. And what would you say about these? Some people might think these are just embedded in certain people's personality, right? So they might say, and even I would say, depending on where you're born in terms of, uh, I mean, in terms of whether you have siblings. So if you're the oldest, if you're the middle child, if you're the youngest, I think sometimes people will fall into these roles when it comes to being accountable or being responsible and taking on responsibility. But would you agree in the sense that these are not these are not personality traits or characteristics. These are things that actually we can choose to be intentional about. Oh, absolutely. We can choose and should choose to be intentional about them. And listen, I was very fortunate to be raised by two parents who instilled a lot of these values in me. They were both elementary school teachers for their entire 40-year careers. So, you know, I had somebody who was telling me to mind my manners and telling me to apologize when I did something wrong and clean up after myself. And I'm sure a lot of people did, but a lot of people didn't. And it's not anybody's fault if the good behavior was not modeled for you from a young age, but it is your responsibility once you are the adult and nobody is legally or morally obligated to take care of shit for you anymore, then it is your responsibility to figure out how to do it for yourself. And so when I say that word responsibility, Yes, there are a lot of people walking among us that are just big fucking babies. They understand the concept of being responsible. They understand the concept of hitting deadlines and being on time and being somebody that their friends and colleagues can rely on. But they just don't care. They don't want to do it. It's not important to them. And they don't care whose life it messes up along the way, including their own. What this Mm. book does is try to take the theoretical adults who do care, they do want to do well, they wish things were going a little more smoothly for them, and give them the tools with which to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum, which is the total fucking grown up. (laughs) Yeah, you mentioned the questions, actually, the questions that you pose as well. And I even just reading those questions and kind of reflecting myself, I found that really, really interesting. And actually, I go as far as to say a little bit emotional, maybe I was just in an emotional mood, but I read those questions and and yeah, I think one the one that was asking me to think about 
what was the thing that you wish that your parents had taught you or that you wish that I am a parent myself, but that you wish other parents would teach their kids. And so, yeah, I really liked those kind of self-reflective questions. And I think that even just taking the time to sit with these things and think about it is going to inform the way we act and behave. I agree. And that's why one of the very first uh, skills that we get into in the book is self-awareness. And, you know, I think that as part of that pillar of maturity, the first thing you have to be able to do is, is know yourself. You know, you can't go out there in the world and ask for what you want and expect to get what you want and need and communicate effectively to other people if you can't communicate effectively with yourself. And that's where maturity begins. It begins with understanding who you are, what makes you tick, you know, listening to your body and brain when they're trying to tell you something and taking that information in and and then being able to react to it in a on a full spectrum. And throughout the course of the book, I make the analogy that, you know, an actual baby doesn't know anything. They don't even know how their toes work. You know, they they can't be expected to be mature and responsible, let alone accountable for their behavior. But you, if you're old enough to be reading this book, you can. And one of the things that I think does get neglected in our adult life is that capacity for self-awareness because we feel very reactive. There's a lot going on. There's a lot coming at us. If we're, you know, 20 years old, 23, 25, there's new responsibilities, big responsibilities. The older we get, maybe we become responsible for other baby humans. Um, And sometimes it feels like like we just want to skip over the self-awareness part because we have too much to do. But it's really, really important to start there and to ask yourself, honest questions and answer them honestly so that you can go forward in life and get what you want and need. Yeah, I am. I mean, I wrote down self-awareness and underlined it twice to talk to you about because (laughs) I do a lot of keynote speaking and I go and speak to employees of organizations. And one of the questions that I, one of the, the kind of workshops that I do, it's not about like strengths and weaknesses, but more about likes and dislikes. Now in this kind of workshop, I talk about self-awareness. Now I can guarantee if I ask a room of a hundred people to raise your hand, if you think that you are self-aware, how many people do you think raise their hand typically? They all do. I bet. Every single person in the room raises their hand. Now, every time. Now, of course, not everyone can be self-aware, but everybody thinks they are. And I think that's the first problem. If if we could accept, okay, I need to listen to what people are telling me about me. Maybe some of that is true. Maybe that's the first place to start. So how can people, if they think, okay, Adrienne, Sarah, I'm self-aware. Like, I am definitely self-aware. How can they stress test this to figure out if they are? Okay, well, this is kind of silly, but it's a fun thing that my my husband and I did and some friends did when uh, when we were whiling away the time during the pandemic. Uh, there are a lot of internet personality quizzes out there. There's one in particular, and I'll dig up the link for you and send it after, but it in it's like 150 questions, and it's all a sliding scale of, you know, one, I completely disagree, five, I'm in the middle, 10, this is me. And it asks you questions about yourself. And it takes all of this data and crunches it. And at the end, it tells you the fictional character that you are most like. And it gives wow. you your top 10 matches and the percentage match. So when I took this, this test, my top match at the time, this was a television show I had never seen. So I didn't really understand what my top match meant. But I was self, self-professedly 
97% match to the Dowager Countess of Downton Abbey. And when I told my husband that this was what I got on the quiz, he said, wow, not only do you know yourself really well, but you're willing to admit a lot of things about yourself <laughs> that some people might not think were accurate. So when my brother took the quiz and my husband took it, and my husband's answers I did not think were really that matched up with him. So what we did was we started swapping. And so like I took the quiz on my mom's behalf to see what what I came up with for her because I thought it was a more accurate representation of who she is than maybe who she thought she was. And so this is actually kind of a fun thing to do. You don't have to do it with a hundred question quiz. I just took another one on which Ted Lasso character you are. And by the way, I am Roy Kent uh, and my husband is Keely. <laughs> so, so I think that, you know, it's it's a fun way to you take you take the test. You can decide whether or not you think it suits you. But have somebody else take it on your behalf and see what they get. And maybe that's closer to how you present to the world. And if they don't match up, maybe you need to do a little work on self-awareness. Oh, this is fascinating. And it's right up my street. I am the kind of person I will do this test I, again and again. I will absolutely love it. My husband will not do this. I already can tell he's not going to engage in this. He'll just, he won't. <laughs> but I absolutely love this. And going back to when I was talking about, you know, I asked people to hand, raise their hand and everybody says yes. One question that is just an absolute game changer for people to use with whether it's small teams or different relationships is to ask people, what is one thing that I do unintentionally, which kind of detracts or derails from the goal. And again, this can be in a personal or professional setting. And it is a game changer. Like if you are willing to hear what people tell you, obviously with respect and with love, hopefully people are going to tell mm -hmm. you things that are helpful and not just, crit just critical. It's a game changer. So yeah, I think self-awareness is a superpower. And when I read, there was something again, I underlined that you'd, that you'd written about self-awareness that really stood out to me. And it was that often I think about, okay, self-awareness, it's the pros and the cons, as I said, you know, strengths and weaknesses. But often I think we focus on the strengths, don't we? We'll be like, I'm self-aware. This is what I'm good at. This is my, this is what I should do more of, et cetera. But you wrote that it's knowing what you have to offer. It's knowing what you want, but it's knowing your limits. And I underlined that because I thought, actually, I've never, I never stopped to think about that. I never stopped to think about, okay, right now in my life, uh, you know, I've got lots of different uh, commitments, you know, kids, stepkids, I'm running the marathon in a few weeks, I'm doing some different work projects. I never stop to think like, what are my limits? And that is something, again, when it comes to all of us being reflective, it might change throughout your life. But I think that is something I certainly have overlooked and need to reflect on and go, okay, what are my limits right now? Because I think like many people, we just take on so much and then we berate ourselves for thinking, why can't I do everything? Well, actually, yeah, we all have limits. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And it actually ties in incredibly well with something else you said about, you know, letting somebody else look at you and and with, you know, constructively and, and with love and in the right frame of mind say, here's something, you know, you do that maybe you don't realize you're doing that's possibly detrimental to your professional goals or your personal relationships. And that takes it all the way around to the third pillar of the grow the fuck up MO, which is accountability. What I talk in one of those chapters about being able to take criticism, being able mm -hmm. to sit back and listen to judgment without judgment and accept what somebody is telling you that may feel, you know, it may make you feel some some way, some bad, uncomfortable way, but being able to take it in and not be reactive and not throw a tantrum and not get stubborn and and really, you know, listen and then 
sort of circle back to that idea of, okay, how do I plug this into my understanding of myself and how can this help me be more self-aware and how can I stop doing this thing in the future or start doing something that somebody's, you know, pointed out that maybe I should be doing. And it all is this virtuous cycle, but it starts with that self-awareness and eventually you can kind of move your way through the pillars and get to the accountability and become a person who not only is self-aware to begin with, but who's willing to accept even more self-knowledge brought to them by other people in their lives. Mm. Yeah, it's really powerful. And, you know, we accept that other people are imperfect, right? We probably don't think anyone that we know is 100% perfect, virtuous, gets it right all the time. Yet when it comes to, like you said, hearing criticism about ourselves, I think it's important to remember that, you know, no one's perfect, we're all imperfect. And it doesn't mean that even the things that you might want to change, maybe you can't, you know, maybe there's also, like you say, that level of acceptance as well. Um, But I want to talk to you now about the upside of adulting, because as you listed at the start, things like paying taxes, changing tires, I I don't know, getting health insurance, these things that we have to do because we're adults. But there's also, I always talk about agency and influence and kind of, you know, I know we don't have control, apparently control is an illusion, but influence (laughs) and agency of our own lives. That makes me excited. It makes me empowered. I encourage others to say, come on, like you do have agency in your life. You're an adult now. You can choose, you get to choose. So let's talk about some of the upside. And I think as you would describe it in the book as taking initiative. Well, so it's very important to me that when people are reading this book, they are getting at least 50% excitement, good, great, fun to balance out the, okay, I got to do this. I got to work this into my daily life if I want to be an adult. Absolutely, it is important. And I, I refer to it as R&R, which is mm-hmm. uh, relief and reward. And the thing is, your parents probably always said to you, no, you have to finish your chores before you can go play. Being an adult, is very much the same. You got to do the stuff that you might not really want (laughs) to do, the stuff that's a little bit annoying, but then you get to go play. So for example, if you are responsible enough to be out there earning your own income, then that means you can spend it however you like. And if you are willing to take the initiative and be resourceful enough to plan a vacation, you get to go wherever you want. You're no longer limited to where your parents want to take you or where your better organized best friend wants to go. If you are willing to be more independent, be more responsible and accountable to yourself, take initiative, be resourceful, put the work in, then you get all of that reward. And it's, you know, it's a it's facile to say, well, you're the adult now, so you can eat ice cream for dinner if you want. But that is kind of the underlying theme of the pleasures of adulting, which is that if you are willing, if you're willing to go out there and earn the money and go to the grocery store and buy the ice cream, eat it whenever you want. You're in charge now. And that's really, as you said, empowering. It's exciting. You know, there are going to be a lot of sort of mini drudgeries day in and day out because there's nobody else, like I said earlier, around who is morally and legally obligated to take care of it for you. But you can turn all of that into this reward and relief um, for, for doing it and for doing it well and then being able to go out and enjoy the fruits of your adulting labors. Yes. Amen. I think for someone like me, maybe because 
even just reflecting now hearing you say that about you know the kind of big babies and I think to be honest growing up I had to be an adult from a young age you know I had to be responsible I had to take on a lot of uh, parental responsibility for my younger siblings and I just had to basically just get with the program and live in the real world but from probably age 12 but for some people who I don't think have maybe had that experience maybe they weren't given a lot of responsibility maybe they always had someone kind of saying oh you can't do it I'm going to help you or you know I've just certainly got friends who with all the the best intention their parents kind of I don't know maybe they just wanted to help so much that they've kind of they just never had the confidence to really back themselves do things on their own whether it was I remember even when I was about maybe I was about 21 and I had a friend who we were going on a trip together and she was literally like she wanted me to do everything you know like the the admin things around booking flights and doing things because she'd never booked a flight before she didn't know how to do it because she was just like oh my dad does that stuff or you know and I think for people who if they I, I find it exciting but what about people that find it daunting who say okay well if I have to do these things now and not just practical things but making decisions you know like you said silly example of like eating ice cream for dinner but we do have to make decisions every single day as adults and some might be small and have small consequences and others are huge. So yeah, for others who find that daunting to kind of say, actually, this responsibility is very overwhelming. What if I make the wrong decision? What if I get it wrong? How can people start to trust themselves and back themselves that they're making the right decisions? Well, one of my favorite ways to to make a decision, and I talk about this in the book as well, is to literally go straight to the to, straight to the end point and say, "What is the worst that could happen? If I am choosing between two things, I'm choosing between four things. I'm deciding whether I want to quit my job. I'm deciding what I want to have for dinner. Whatever it is, what is the worst that could realistically happen? You can't go catastrophizing. You know, you can't say, um, "If I decide to go on this." this trip over, you know, across across the Atlantic Ocean versus an, an inland vacation, I, my plane might go down in a fiery crash. You can't say that. That's not realistic. But what is realistically the worst that could happen? And then write it down. And I say nine times out of 10, you're going to look at that and go, well, that's not so bad. Like that mm. option, that potentially worst that could happen thing is not enough to stop me from going ahead and making the decision and moving forward. Um, and the logic behind that is that if you never make a decision, then you never get to do any of these fun, exciting, liberating things that we've been talking about. You know, if you're so uh, mired in analysis paralysis and you're afraid of making the call and taking the responsibility and being the adult in the room, then you never get to do anything. And that's no way to live. So. That is a trick that I like to use, which is if I'm hemming and hawing, if I'm nervous about something, if I just can't, you know, if I've got all of the information in front of me and I'm just scared that I'm making the wrong choice, I say, what is the worst that could possibly happen? Realistically, Sarah. And usually that's enough for me to say, oh, okay, I'm just going to go with my gut on this one and I'm sure it'll be fine. And it is. It's, it's almost, it is 99.9% .9 of the time it is fine. <laughs> Yeah. And even if, as you said, that worst case scenario, when you write it down, what's the worst that could happen realistically? When you look at that, even if you don't say, oh, that's not so bad, maybe the next question then is, well, what would you do if that happened? Because there's always a next, right? Nothing's ever final. Nothing's ever the end. Hopefully it's not the end of your career or your life. So I think sometimes just looking at that worst case scenario and saying, even if that happened, you'd still get up the next day and do something. You'd just figure it out. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And this is a point that I make in an earlier book called Calm the Fuck Down, which is you have to stop <laughs> asking what if, what if, and turn it into, okay, now what? Yes. Oh my gosh, this is great. This is gold. We need, we need, if you haven't already, then you need to order the full stack and make your way through these books. <laughs> um, flipping back though, because there's me saying, you know, I grew up with responsibility. I'm happy to lead and make decisions. I'm capable. I'm competent, which I stand by. However, I am a recovering people pleaser because I feel the responsibility not only for myself, but for everyone else in my life to make sure that they're having a good time. Is this what they want to do? Is this okay? Is everyone happy? Is this all going to work out? Everything from planning Christmas to, like I say, just everything. So I'm working on it, but for my fellow people pleasers, how, talk to us, Sarah, you have so much wisdom and you kind of, I think you have such a great way of summing things up in a way that seems quite obvious and like why aren't you doing it like this so yeah any advice and real tips and gold for people pleasers or recovering people pleasers like me well that is i'm so glad that you think so because that is kind of my brand which is to just come out with it in a very no-nonsense way and have people say why didn't i think of that before why did it take yeah. this woman with her sweary self-help series to knock some sense into me um i have i have so much to say i too am a recovering people pleaser i think a lot of women are in particular because we're socialized to to serve you know to make everyone comfortable mm. to see if everyone has what they need you know it's certainly um has something to do with with the the mother role in our society. I am personally not a mother and never will be, but I also feel that urge to make sure that everybody is okay. Um, and it can be detrimental to our ability to actually do a good job on the things that we're committed to because we're overcommitted. It can be detrimental to our mental health because we spend too much time worrying about other people and not enough for ourselves. So there are a, a few sort of easy tips that I like to give to people who have this problem. And one is give yourself the gift of the pause. Anytime somebody asks you to do something, whether it's your sister asking you to do a personal favor or your boss asking you to join a particular team or a coworker asking you to donate to their charity 5K, say, thanks. Thanks for asking. Thanks for thinking of me. Oh, that's so cool. Let me get back to you. Just give yourself that gift of pause. Do not, you do not have to say yes in the moment. And if saying no scares you because it makes you feel like you're not, you're not doing that people-pleasing, you're going against every fiber in your being that wants to help somebody out or wants to smooth things over or wants to make it okay, you don't have to say no in the moment either. But if you give yourself that automatic pause, then you have given yourself some breathing room to sit back to think, do I want to do this? Yes or no? Can I do this? Am I capable? Do I have the time? Do I have the money? Whatever it is. Um, and then you can have that, that ability to formulate an answer, whether it's a yes or a no, outside of the pressure cooker of the face-to-face -face ask. You know, So give yourself the gift of the pause is one thing. The other, and I talk about this in Grow the Fuck Up, because if you want to be a responsible person, if you want to be dependable and reliable, don't overcommit. Overcommitting is the worst thing you can do to prove yourself as an adult, because if you overcommit, you will certainly underdeliver. You will drop some of those way too many balls that you have in the air, and instead of developing a reputation as somebody who is reliable and dependable and responsible and who can be trusted and given more freedom and autonomy in their work and who can be respected in their personal and professional lives, you will start to look like a big fucking baby who can't handle your shit. <laughs> um, so 
listen to somebody who spent the first 35 years of her life over committing and got 10 years worth of panic attacks uh, and and had to basically blow up her life and start over um you know when she tells you don't overcommit just don't do it you know um so and the other thing a very quick a very quick tip for people who are people pleasers who can't say no there's something called the no and switch I made it up. And what it is, is you say no to the thing that's being asked of you, but you offer an alternative that works for you. So this is a way to put the ball back in the other person's court. And if you say, you know, no, I can't go to your big birthday party at that starts at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night. It's just too late for me. I have to get up early on Sunday and do things. But I would love to celebrate with you. Can I take you out for a drink at a reasonable hour on another day? Um, then you are accepting the thing that somebody has has asked of you, you're saying like, I'm willing to do this. I want to help you out, but I just want to do it in a way that works for both of us. And then the ball is in their court and they're welcome to say yes or no. And you can keep working on that compromise until you find a way that works for both of you. This is gold. Get a pen, get a paper, write it down, rehearse it. Because honestly, when you're saying it, I'm nodding along. I'm like, yes. But I know when you said, for example, someone asked you to do something, so the pause, I'm like, okay, I can do that. I've done that before. I do that all the time. You know, thanks for the invitation or thank you for asking. Thanks for thinking of me. Let me loop back to you. But the problem is, Sarah, then I just run away and hope that they never find me, but they do. And then when they circle back, because I still have not said no, look what I am overcommitted. So they circle back and they go, Hey, you didn't get back to me. Are you coming tomorrow? And I'll go, yeah, 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 of course I am. Yeah. See you there. And I was just like, why can I not say it? So after the pause, we have to then say no. <laughs> this is, this is a common problem. It's not just you, I promise. And okay, the thing good. is in across all of my books and you know, cause you read grow the fuck up. I am very concerned with honesty and politeness. People are surprised by this because of the swear words on the cover, but I really do think that honesty and politeness are just the, the pillars of being a, a good and functioning person in the world. And one of the things about being asked to do something, whether it's an invitation or a request to join a group project or something, um, politeness is answering in a timely fashion. So you can't, you know, you give yourself that pause, but then you do have to remember that if you want to be the kind of person who is worthy of respect, that you do have to get back to somebody in a reasonable time. And if I have a minute to tell you a quick story about saying no in a work context, because I know this is really uh, something that people struggle with a lot. I was an editor. This was before before I left my job, a couple of years before I left my job, but I was a senior editor and my boss invited me to the London Book Fair. And it was a really prestigious offer because there were 12 editors, all of whom would have loved to go. He could only take one of us. I had a big British author at the time, two, two big British projects at the time, so it would have been a good opportunity for me to network. Um, but I I hate flying. I'm I'm really terrified of flying. I'm a bad flyer. You know, I do all the things I have to do to make it work for me, but I don't like it. And I certainly don't like having to fly seven hours overnight to land in another country, jet lagged, and then have to be ready and on for work. If I'm going to take a trip of that nature, I want it to be for a vacation. <laughs> so I gave myself the pause. I said, thanks so much. Let me get back to you. And then I went to my office and I shut the door and I and I cried. Uh, and, and I thought, how what do I do? I don't want to do this. I can't do it. If I do it, I'm not gonna present well. But how can I say no? This is it's an honor. It's it, he's offering me this great opportunity. He's gonna be disappointed in me if I say no. What do I do? 
And so I didn't respond for a couple of days, and I should have. And he had to come back to me, and he had to say, hey, Sarah, you know, if you don't want to go for some reason, there are a lot of other people who do, so I kind of need to hear back from you. And that chastened me. And at that moment, I just blurted out everything that I just told you <laughs> to my boss. I said, you know, I really appreciate it. I know it's an honor. I'm a terrible flyer. I don't think that I'm going to be on my game if I have to do this. Like, I- I'm not going to be a good representative for the company. I really appreciate the offer, but I actually think somebody else should do this. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I wish I could say no to these things, but I'm the big boss and it's my job to go. It is absolutely not your job to say yes to this. Thank you for letting me know. I will invite someone else. So this whole scenario that I had built up in my head about what he was going to think of me and what the consequences were going to be if I said no, it actually was fine. And it turns out that I probably should have even done it another couple of days sooner to adhere to my own personal you know, desire to be polite. But really, it's just not – it doesn't have to be that scary. And hopefully what I'm doing in telling these stories across all of my books is letting people know that we're all out here. We're all trying to do this. It happens. It mostly works out. I've done it. Here are some mistakes I've made. Maybe you won't have to make them if you listen to my advice. But it really just doesn't have to be that scary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and you know what I'm thinking as well as you're giving these examples is you're so right when you said that, you know, people who actually say no or people who respond in a timely manner, nine times out of 10, you don't think the person's rude or you actually think you have respect for these people. You know, I'm always like, like he said, wow, I wish I could say no to stuff. You know, my sister's very good at this. And I always think, gosh, like I just need to be more like her because yeah, you do. You kind of have respect for people who have respect for themselves and their own time. So when someone says to you, my hairdresser, my hairdresser, she is great at this. I invited her to something a few months ago and her response via message, via text said, thank you for the invitation. I can't make it. That was all. Oh, I love her. There was no, oh my gosh, right? Exactly. So I didn't think, oh my gosh, she's so rude. I was like, Sabrina is just the best. I was like, she's the best because that's what I want to, I aspire to be. I aspire to do it. So yeah, I, I love that, that, you know, if you respect yourself, you respect your time, give people an honest and polite response. They will actually respect you more. And one more point on the politeness part, because you're right. I think if you read the title of the first book, the life-changing magic of not giving a fuck. You could misinterpret that as thinking it's one of those, you know, it's all about you. Just think about yourself. Don't worry about everybody else. Like YOLO, like I know some young people who have this kind of attitude that's kind of like, you know, just focus on you, prioritize yourself, you do you and all that kind of thing. When actually you're so right, reading your work straight away, that is not the vibe at all. It's not about, okay, forget everyone else, do what works for you. I think it's much more balanced than like you said, that word politeness you might not expect, but it really does. It is that thread throughout, isn't it? Which is about actually having respect for yourself and setting boundaries and and helping others in, in, 
essentially doing that for yourself is going to help other people. Exactly. And thank you so much for saying that because I really try very hard to make sure that these books are not only, you know, practical and actionable and entertaining, but also that aren't alienating. And I'm not out here trying to say, you know, look out for number one and only number one. The point Mm -hmm. that I make throughout Grow the Fuck Up, in fact, is that Let's just all be the total fucking grownups we want to see in the world because don't you want to work with and live with and love with and be in family relationships with people who are mature and responsible and accountable? I mean, isn't that who you want to be surrounded by? So if you can go out there and model that good behavior and we can, we will all just have an easier and more pleasant time getting through the world if we can all stop being big fucking babies and really reach for that total fucking grown-up mantle yes and now sarah i could talk to you for ages i feel like this is actually like a therapy session which people are gonna have to listen into but before i move on to my power hour section which i ask every guest about my final i suppose question about the book about this topic is owning your mistakes now we've kind of touched on it a little bit with the responsibility part with the Uh, people pleasing part but again I think it is something that's difficult to do easy to say but difficult to do so yeah could you talk us through I guess how and why it is so important so empowering when we can actually be honest with ourselves and others and own our mistakes well this was the most challenging part for me of being an adult Uh, and when I was writing the section on accountability I definitely thought all right, girl, you gotta, you really gotta be taking your own advice a little bit more regularly. <laughs> um, because I just, for whatever reason, I, I don't like being wrong. I don't like being accused of being wrong. I don't like admitting when I was wrong. Um, and I think that when you dig down into it, that's probably, you know, for other people who have that issue, uh, it's because it somehow feels, it's sort of like compounding the shame of the mistake you made by having to apologize for it. It's like, you know in your heart that you should just admit what you did wrong and apologize for it and try to make it right. But somehow the act of admitting it is like a double dose of that shame of having been wrong in the first place, at least. That's what it's like for me. And there are two ways that I've found useful to get around this in my own life. One of them is I have a husband who is infuriatingly good at admitting when he's wrong and apologizing immediately for what he's done. Um, And so I like a little healthy competition. And I have found that over time, it's actually, it, it feels good in a competitive way for me to immediately admit when I've been wrong because that somehow evens the score between us. Um, But the other thing is just a mindset shift. So I talk about this in the book. In what if, if you're one of those people like me who just has a hard time taking criticism, doesn't like to be wrong, has a difficult time mustering an apology, what if instead of feeling, you know, ashamed about what you did, you felt empowered for being the kind of person who is willing to take it on the chin, say, it, that's me, my bad, my fault, and apologize for it? You know, what mm-hmm. if instead of laying awake at night letting the thing that you did that everybody knows you did, you know, they know you did it. If you did something bad, it is known by other people. And so you're going to lay awake at night replaying it in your head. What could I have done differently? I can't believe I did that. I feel so stupid. The easiest way to put a stop to all of that negative self-talk and all of those sleepless nights is just to say, I'm sorry. And that is liberating. 
So mm-hmm. I recommend, you know, that mindset shift between taking criticism feels bad. It makes me feel like I'm a bad person, like I'm not good enough. And admitting that I've done something wrong is shameful and it and it compounds the 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 shame of having done the wrong thing and turn it into something that is empowering and liberating and that restarts the clock. Once you apologize and start cleaning up your mess, um you're golden, you know. You you have reached the pinnacle of adulthood. That is what adulting is all about. Moving forward, past is past. Learn from your mistakes. Do better next time. Yes, and do better next time. I think is really important because the example that I always think about is being late. Now, I'm someone. I'm going to be honest. I am late sometimes, and it is my own fault. So it's not like, oh, sorry, I was late. The train was delayed, or oh, sorry, I was late. I don't know my it's my fault like if I'm late it's because I left late so my husband who is incredibly punctual and does not like lateness he doesn't like people being late he has he said to me before if someone's one minute late they're late he doesn't he just doesn't like it so Mm -hmm. I have changed my behavior because I know that a it causes tension it's going to be frustrating and annoying for him but what you said then around like make make a change make it different is that if I just constantly go Oh, I'm sorry. Because I could say, sorry, sorry, I was late. I, I, And to be honest as well, sorry, I'm late. It's because I am overambitious with how many things I can do in the morning. So once I've done Pilates and once I've done this thing and dropped the kit, I think I'm going to have loads of time. And guess what? My hair's still wet. I'm late. Mm-hmm. So saying, sorry, I'm late. It's only impactful if you stop doing it. You know what I mean? Like if you just say, sorry, I'm late every week and carry on being late, it's not good enough. And I think I've learned that finally. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're trying because I am definitely in your husband's camp. I am a very punctual person. And I do give some really clear tips on how you can be on time every time um, in this book. So hopefully the the people out there who are who have a little trouble with their lateness will take something away from that. Um, but I end the book on this concept of learning from your mistakes. It is really important mm. if the at the very beginning of the book I talk about learning your ABCs. The simplest way toward being an adult is remembering that your actions and behavior have consequences. Those are your ABCs. And if you remember that before you act or behave in a particular way, envision what the consequences of that are going to be, and then adjust your course accordingly. And by the end of the book, we get to the point of learning from your mistakes. And that's when you reverse it and you go to your CBAs and you look at the consequences of what happened. Your husband was mad at you. You missed the beginning of a party. You know, whatever those consequences may be, what were your behavior and actions that led to that? Okay, stop doing that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's really just that simple. And it is, it can be a habit of a lifetime, but trust me, as someone you can, and don't get me wrong, I'm going to be honest now and name and shame. Like, I am not one of these people who's a late person. Like, I have got friends who are late people, and the consequences of their lateness is expensive. So, one friend in particular, she will not mind me sharing this story. She has been late to so many things so many times that she has missed flights. She has missed expensive, the Eurostar from France once. I think it cost her maybe Oof. 400 pounds on the spot to get the next one. She's missed um, theater shows, which she's bought tickets for. Like, her cost of her lateness is expensive. I'm talking about being five minutes late, you know, not an hour. But but regardless, it is possible to change the habit of a lifetime. So even for that friend, I get eventually, I think exactly what you just said, the consequences, she was like, 
why am I, you know, suffering and stressing and spending all of this because I can't manage my time. And again, we kind of joke about people who are optimistic are often late because they just, yeah, have this positive outlook that everything's going to go fine. They're going to get there on time. But even if you've been doing this for 30, 40, 50 years, just like have a, I don't know what it takes, but maybe just like have an intervention with yourself and like set yourself. I set myself like a false deadline. So if, if my husband says we need to be ready at seven, I'm like, okay, we need to be ready at 640. Cause then I know I'll definitely be ready. So whatever it takes, you can change these things. And it is really important. I think we kind of, um, yeah, we need to not just say to people, well, that's just who I am. I'm just a late person and that's it. Yeah, that is that is unacceptable and also untrue. Um, there's no such thing as a late person who can't just be on time. It only takes a little bit more self-awareness and a little bit more um, responsibility. But I have a friend who we will actually give her a half hour different time for a dinner reservation because we know that she's just not going to get there on time. So if dinner is at 7.30, we tell her 7 and then she gets there at 7.30. Final thing that I want to talk to you about, Sarah, is, of course, the power hour. So concept of time, the power hour in its simplest form is about reclaiming your time, essentially the first hour of every day. Now, mine is very early, but other people have adapted this concept and they just do it whatever time they like. But mine is very early and it's the first hour of the day. I'm very intentional with that time and what I allow into it and what I don't. So Sarah, tell us, as somebody who I'm sure, like just hearing you speak with such conviction and I feel like you're going to have very good boundaries. So tell us, what does the first hour of your day typically look like and why? The first hour of my day begins with me waking up whenever I am good and ready to wake up. Unless I have a flight to catch or an early interview, I do not set an alarm. And that is the gift that I gave myself when I went freelance. I have Mm -hmm. been someone who hates mornings and hates getting out of bed since I was a small child. My mother used to have to come up the stairs after my alarm had gone off four times and I'd hit snooze four times and physically pull me out of bed. And I was, I liked school. I was a great student. I graduated tops in my class, but I did not like getting out of bed in the morning. Um, And so now my day begins by waking up whenever I wake up. I go downstairs and I open the door to my two feral trash cats who live in my garden and I feed them because their needs are are very important. (laughs) Um, I, I turn on the coffee. I sweep the terrace. The coffee is done. I sit down with it. I go through my social media feeds and I allow myself literally one hour. This is the the amount of time that I allow myself to wake the fuck up because I suffered for 15 years in my corporate job by having to get up, you know, two hours earlier than I was good and ready to get up and put on makeup and put on heels and get on the subway and commute for 45 minutes and get into an office and start doing emails and going to meetings. God, I hate meetings. And getting on conference calls way before my brain was in working order. And you know, not everybody can do this. Not everybody wants to be out of that structured mode. Some people love working in an office. But for me, I needed to have a working life that gelled with the fact that I am not at top intellectual or creative capacity until I've been awake for at least an hour and fully caffeinated. So that's what I do. I wake up when I wake up. If that's nine o'clock, if that's 11 o'clock, come downstairs, feed the cats, brew the coffee, drink the coffee, scroll the socials. And after about an hour, my brain is starting to be ready to function. And I've written, you know, seven books in seven years 
because I've been able to use my brain at the time that it is good and ready to be used. And I am incredibly grateful for that opportunity. And for me, it is just the way to live. Wow. You see, I feel like if the listeners of this show did not love you already, they couldn't love you anymore after that answer. <laughs> because honestly, again, people sometimes they like, oh no, you know, I've got to get up early. I've got to be productive. I've got to seize the day. And as I say, I'm an early riser. And for me, that is probably because I'm so easily distracted. It's the only time in my day when I can really have solitude because there's no emails and the kids are asleep, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, it is also a function of necessity as well as my natural inclination. But as I said, I'm sure there are many people who like you don't enjoy the mornings. They find it a struggle. And I think it's so it must be so amazing for those people to hear, listen, I have been incredibly successful and I do it this way and it works for me. Well, I I hope that there are other people out there like me listening because this is a problem that I did not solve for 35 years. So (laughs) I could not be more grateful that I have managed to find a solution. And I hope other people who are looking for that solution might be inspired to seek it out a little sooner than I did. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been fantastic. I'm sure the listeners are going to absolutely love it. And can you tell us here in the UK, when is the book available? Well, we're recording this show on April 4th, and today, April 4th, is publication day. So the book is now available worldwide um, and should be in any bookstore you want to walk into in the UK and pick it up. And if not, they can order it for you. It's called Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One. Oh, thank you so much. And congratulations on publication day. That is super exciting. I feel honored that we've been able to record today. And as I said, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. I know that you will have enjoyed this just as much as I have. So dive into the book. You will not regret it. And of course, share this episode with someone else as well. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you for having me. This was absolutely a fantastic conversation. I loved it. A great start to my pub day. 